Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Mike Conlin from Affordable Communities Group. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. Thanks for making my day with that five-star review of this show. All right, let's dive in. Mike Conlon is president and CEO of Affordable Communities Group, LLC, based in Cary, North Carolina. ACG currently owns a majority share in 44 mobile home communities and RV parks with approximately 6,200 spaces across six states. Mike is also the author of Unconventional Wealth, How to Become a Main Street Millionaire, Helping Others Get What They Need, where he gives uh, insights to his tailored business and investing strategy. Mike, we are excited to welcome you to the show. Andrew, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, dude, let's dive right into the questions. Maybe you can start out by telling us about your story and how you got into manufactured housing. Yeah, it, it is sort of a crazy story. So just a quick tale of my background. Went to law school, absolutely hated it. Got into banking. One of the best moves I ever made was not becoming a lawyer. Got a lot of friends who just hate the business. <laughs> got into banking, lasted about 24 months. It was very corporate. And I learned quickly I wasn't a corporate guy. So then I went into the financial planning business, which I enjoyed, failed miserably at first, stumbled into an organization that was young and growing, and I got a somewhat leadership role early on and grew it real big. And we were in the right place at the right time, mid-90s, stock market was going through the roof, and we grew this broker dealer real big and sold it to a big insurance company. So that was my like first payday, just being in the right place at the right time. I was, I was fairly naive at the time, but... After that, I bought a financial planning practice because that's sort of what I knew. Financial planning is a good business. It, it's somewhat residual um, because you get trails and stuff like that, but it's a grind. I had 500 plus clients working wow. a lot. The markets get volatile. You know, it gets a little bit crazy. So in about 2001, I read this book, which most people have read, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that book changed my life. I, I didn't know anything about real estate investing. I really didn't know anybody who had, who had done it. And when I read the book, it made so much sense to me. And Kiyosaki talks about apartments, never mentions mobile home parks. I don't know if you even knew about it. But so we went into apartments and I was living in Wisconsin at the time. And one of the junior planners in my office, who's my chief operations officer today, 20 years later, is said, hey, I'll do the outside stuff. You know, you find the apartment deals and whatever. And so we bought a couple of deals in Wisconsin, liked the business, but realized nobody was moving to Wisconsin. So we moved to Orlando, Florida in late 2002 and bought six or seven apartment complexes. Liked the business, was growing the business. It was difficult. I mean, it's apartments by nature are more difficult than mobile home parks because it's transitory. And you typically mm -hmm. get 45% of your people to move out every year and you need licensed maintenance guys and all, all this other stuff. So we did that for a couple of years. And then I stumbled across somebody wrote a book or something about mobile home parks and I said, wow, that looks interesting. Seems like a decent concept. So, of course, the way we were back then, we just jumped in and bought a mobile home park and figured we'd figure it out, you know. And we bought this small 80 space park in Lakeland, Florida. 
And yeah. it was it was 80 homes on four acres, if you can imagine that. They were like right next to each other. A couple mm-hmm. of them were on like 25 amp electric. You know, I mean, if they turned on the hairdryer and the TV, the electric went out. You know what I mean? It was ridiculous. But, you know, we, we sort of learned the process of what it was. And Chris Berry, who's my chief operations guy, said, hey, way easier to manage. Let's do these instead of the apartments. And at about the same time in 06, all of a sudden these guys came knocking on my door and saying, hey, I want to buy your apartments for X, sort of what's going on today in, in every asset class. And I said, well, you know, they're not really for sale. And they're like, well, how about if we offer you double X? And I said, well, maybe they are for sale. So, <laughs> so that was more lucky than good. And we ended up selling all the apartments in 06 in Florida, but we couldn't reinvest in Florida. We really wanted to go into mobile home parks at that. We were pretty sold on that concept. But the prices were so high, you know, like they are today. So one of my good buddies, Enon Winkler, who's a broker in the business still, said, hey, go to Raleigh or Charlotte. Those are the next hot spots." And he was absolutely right. I mean, turned out he was from Greensboro originally, so he knew it. And we decided to move to Raleigh because it was just a little bit smaller at the time and got in the mobile home park business. And away we went, you know, and didn't know anything we were doing. We didn't understand the difference between lot rents and park-owned homes. I mean, septic system, whatever. We made every mistake in the book, but we figured it out and it's obviously worked out well from there. Wow. That is fantastic. So that park, the 80 space one in Lakeland, what year was that? Do you remember what year that was? What we bought that? We bought that in 2005. 2005. Okay. Wow. That is fantastic. And then Enon, that's awesome. I need to have him on the podcast. I haven't had him yet. So yeah, that would be awesome. I saw him at MHI. So yeah, I'll have to reach out to him. Very cool. So came from from the apartment world, did well, right? Had a nice exit and got into mobile home parks, easier to manage. Let's see, what do you think is the toughest hurdle for most operators in mobile home park ownership? Let's take one step back and let me, let's just talk about apartments versus mobile home parks. Sure. Yeah. Number one, I, I enjoyed the experience. It's an easier sell, especially if you're going to investors because the brick and mortar is much sexier than a so-called trailer park, obviously. It's mm-hmm. funny because the only investor I initially had when I first started out was my dad. And I didn't even want to tell him we were going into mobile home parks because he didn't <laughs> get it. You know, he was like, he loved the apartment thing because he could see it and touch it, you know, and stuff like that. But all I would say from an apartment standpoint, it was a great learning experience, but it's a tough business. I mean, the, the amount of turnover, the turnover in the staff, uh, the maintenance especially is difficult. Uh, I found the yields to be much lower than mobile home parks even today, obviously, just because your expenses are so much higher. So that, you know, sort of transitioned and, and really, whether it be mobile home parks or apartments, the biggest hurdle is your first deal. You have no money, you have no idea what you're doing, you have no track record. And you somehow got to piece it together. And again, I, I tell people to start small. The first apartment building we bought was an eight unit family back in Wisconsin. We bought it for 300,000 and sold it like two years later for 304 or something. You know, I mean, that's that's where you learn. You get your feet wet. You figure out whether you like it or not and do it. And obviously, if you can raise some money, it helps initially. I was fortunate in the broker dealer situation where I sold it. I had some money so I could reinvest it in there but you're going to make a ton of mistakes. Thanks to guys like you and Ryan Naris and some of the other guys. I mean, there's a lot more information than when I started. So it's, you know, you, you got some guidelines now, but I think that that toughest thing is just a, not to have paralysis by analysis where you're just too afraid to jump in and just, you just got to go do it. Now caveat saying it's a much tougher market as we speak in 
you know, May of 2022 with interest rates going up and, you know, every PE shop in the world in the business. So I feel lucky. I'm sure you feel lucky too. When you got in the business at the time you did that things were a lot easier. So I give people, um, I was talking to Hansel Rodriguez, who you may or may not know. And I was really proud of him. He's up to about a thousand communities and he's only started a couple of years ago, young guy, hustler. It's tough to do that. You know, you really, yeah. your yield is a lot less and, and things like that. So that that's where I would say is just have the courage to do it. Agreed. Agreed. So on the apartments, you talked about the high turnover with the tenants and the staff and the higher expense ratios. Is there anything else that like is a major differential uh, between mobile home parks and apartments that you would think is valuable to mention? Yeah, I think the CapEx is much more. You have to spend more money. Your roof and um, mm. your ACs are the two big things in the apartment business. And you're going to have to replace them every 15 years. They get expensive, obviously. Then you have the parking lots and things like that. Not to say you don't have CapEx with the mobile home parks because we have the roads and sewers and things like that. But it's just, you're going to spend more in CapEx. And obviously, when you're turning over the units, you got to redo them and things like that. So I, I just think mobile home parks are an easier business. You know, I'm sure you've had the same situation where you've had tenants at your parks for 25, 30 years. Yeah. You know, and that's the, the lower turnover. We were looking back like a year or so ago, and our turnover is like below 15%. You know, so. Wow long-term lot we're, we're lot rent guys you know we don't do really any rentals we want people to own their home so it makes it easier to manage that's awesome and to go back to that like how did you get educated on mobile home parks i mean was it just dive right in did you go to any boot camps or you know read any books and and how did you end up coming to the you know to the end goal of all right we want to be tenant-owned homes instead of park-owned home that model I believe it was from Mobile Home Park University when it first started. This was way before Frank and Dave. Like, again, 04, 05, I read something, got some type of manual from them, and they walked through the whole thing, how it was an easier business. And really, we learned by doing. We just got into it and figured it out. Um, and then I remember our first MHI we went to was like 2007, and we had like three parks. You know, we didn't know anybody. We didn't. But we got a lot out of that. We got rent manager right away in 2007, which has you know, been tremendous for us over the long term. And just some of those things and the networking that you can do is what really helped us. And then along the way, as we'll get into it, a couple guys gave me some really good pieces of advice as we got further into the business about what to do. And so that really helped. The, the people in the business are very good people. For the most, I think, for the most part. Small businesses, you know, you know a lot more people than I do, actually. But they're mostly good people and willing to help. I've had the same experience. Yeah. From the vendors all the way up to the owners that I've owned for many years. Yeah. I mean, just always willing to help. I still call some of the owners actually this morning, I called one of the owners and said, Hey, you know, do you happen to have an old survey back when you redid the sewer here? And he picked right up and said, yeah, let me go look at my file cabinet. You know, so it's just like that willingness to help and yeah. not such a dog eat dog attitude, I, I think is, is great. Exactly. It's refreshing. Now it's obviously changing a little bit as you get more of the institutional guys in the game a little bit. So it's unfortunate sure. that way, but that's just the evolution. Agreed. Agreed. So maybe you can touch on those insights that, you know, from those couple of people that mentioned some advice to you, because I think that would help our listeners a lot. Well, this here's a couple of key moments when we're doing it. So we pieced together uh, three parks 
uh, mostly in North Carolina back in 06, basically. Well, the first two parks we bought, I bought way too high. I didn't understand the difference between rentals. And back then there was a you know real distinguishing thing between park owned homes and rentals and lot rent. And everything was about lot rent. Fannie Mae didn't touch any three-star parks. You know, the whole world was different. Um, I was fortunate that I had a, a bank lender with a really good relationship, but I strongly recommend you cultivate those relationships. You know, I always told my banker, who is still my banker, same bank today, is I want to be your most profitable client. Because if something happens or there's a deal you don't want to do, you know, I want to make sure you guys know how much money you've made off me. But I think one of the biggest things once after we got started, well, it, it, it's interesting whether you want to think big or not. I had three parks in Raleigh. I was, you know, probably making 25000 a month, not doing a lot, sort of enjoying life. And I'm like, this isn't that bad. You know what? We, we bought it at the right time. We were able to fix it up, you know, and, 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 you know, bump the rents and stuff like that. But I just, I'm not that type of person. And so we sold them at the end of 2011. Uh, only one of them, which I regret selling, I wish we would have kept it, but um, we sold them because we heard that a bunch of the foreclosures and stuff from 08, 09 were finally going to hit the market. Well, we sold everything uh, to Richard and Jordan Odell, who are great guys, friends of ours today, um, and they were very good to us. And then we sold it and then waited six months before we got our first deal. So everyone's just sitting around like, okay, what are we doing now? Um, finally got some deals and that's when we got like incredible bank deals where we bought by six parks for, you know, $6 million and stuff like that. Wow. One park we bought, um, it was thrown in one of the bank of America deals thrown in foreclosure. Uh, it's like 45 to 50 spaces in North Carolina and we bought it for $25,000. I didn't even want it because I had a wastewater treatment plant and I didn't, yeah. I was afraid of them back then. I didn't know what it was. You know, and I'm like, I don't even want that park for 25 grand. Think about that. Wow. And we, <laughs> we, we fixed it up and it probably had it 18, maybe 24 months and sold it for like 575. So, yeah. Wow. So we just sort of got lucky. But we that's and everyone says, hey, Mike, you've done great over last year. If I would have done really great, I should have bought everything I ever saw <laughs> over the last two years. You know, what it could have should, obviously. But so that was that was a big thing for us to buy those foreclosures. Then we got another big foreclosure deal the next year that really helped us. We bought seven parks for super cheap and we had all sorts of environmental issues with one of the parks where you learn and stuff. But probably the best thing that helped me was a guy named Matt Follett, who's still in the business today, uh, based out in Sacramento. Uh, Crawford and son and his other son are in the business too. He sat me down in 2016 and said, hey, you've done a great job building up a basic communities but now it's time to sell the smaller parks and get the bigger quality parks. And wow, he has made me a lot of money. Just that really drilling that into my head. And it was funny because he had owned some of the parks that I had owned at the time. He had owned them like 10 years earlier and they were sort of not the best parks, let's say. So we could laugh about that and relate to it. But he said, you know, you sell those. And what we did and is, you know, as I sort of uh, tell people, you know, we've sold over 4,000 spaces over a period of time. And people say, oh my God, what if you would have held on to them? I said, yeah, maybe. But on the other hand, they were, you know, older, not as nice, smaller parks, and they allowed us to trade up. And what I did mm -hmm. is I traded up. I sold the smaller stuff to buy the bigger, nicer stuff that we're going to keep for the long term. And what that allowed me to do too, is not take on a lot of investors. And I just, mm -hmm. because of the financial planning business, I didn't want to have a lot of investors uh, right now, I only have a, like, you know, a couple, but I own majority of every deal, which 
I just want to have the control. And that, that was a difference for me. I don't know if you can do that today because the deals are so much more expensive and you need the money and stuff like that. But that really helped me a lot. That is great advice. And I, I've heard that through Ryan Norris, the, the trade up model. But I think just starting out in the business, you know, you're trying to do a deal and, and you find these value add deals and the numbers are very attractive, yeah. but it is a lot of work, right? I mean, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the value add projects you've done. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's a ton of them, uh, but it's, you know, from infill to rehabbing homes to utility infrastructure. I mean, you know, that's what we kind of cut our teeth on in the business. And, and I think right now, especially is where you're going to make your money. If, if, you know, if you're younger and newer in the business, you're going to make your money from the value add deals because everything mm. is too expensive. But that's the way I said, I didn't really know that much difference. Kiyosaki sort of talked about that buying rehab stuff. And so we just sort of figured it out. We started a relationship with Clayton, you know, way back when, and just started buying, you know, hundred plus homes a year or whatever and filling them in. And, you know, we bought some ugly parks, one park, we tore out 80 homes. They were so bad. We didn't realize it. Wow. Uh, another park up in Chicago, which is our worst buy ever. Uh, we actually made money on it when we sold it, which was a miracle. But I mean, the pipes were like a sieve. I mean, in the wintertime, you know, guys are shooting out. And yeah, I could tell you a million stories about that. But So what we learned is the value add and the projects are the way to go, but you can't have too many of them because mm. they'll burn you out. They're a lot of work. You need people on the ground to get those homes in, uh, you know, put up, obviously, and then sold. And that, that takes manpower. And you got to people you trust to do that and things like that. So we learned from that standpoint that, hey, let's get some core parks that we're always going to have that are going to be more lot rent only. And then we're always going to have these project type deals that, you know, you, you got to get in there and get the homes and do everything. And now, I mean, we were laughing the other day. It's, we used to be able to get homes in, in some of our early parks, all in for like 28, 29 grand, all in set. All in. And now wow. you're like looking at, almost 60 in some of these, you know, markets where it's a little more expensive. So for, you know, just your basic 16 by 72. So yeah, that's, I, I really think that's still the way to go, but it, it is a lot of work. And I see some of these bigger groups buying a lot of projects and I worry about that because I don't think they, they're biting off more than they can chew. In my opinion, I hope they, they have the manpower to get it done. Maybe we can piggyback on that and, and learn a little bit about your team at ACG and kind of how you've developed that. I know Chris, I've met him uh, previously, but maybe you could just tell us about your team and kind of where you started to where you are now. Yeah, it, it's funny because we've always run very lean. We, it's really been Chris and I, for the most part, doing almost everything. And he's a rock star. I mean, he's, he's operationally, he's fantastic. He knows everything. And I think one of the best things we did early on is get good managers and overpay them. And mm -hmm. we overpaid them. We have very little of any manager turnover. We give them free reign. Obviously, they collect the rents and do the projects or whatever. We're not sitting there saying, hey, are you working 40 hours a week or whatever? They like working for us versus a bigger corporation. Um, and we pay them. I mean, we surprise them with bonuses and here and there. And, you know, the more the managers are everything, because a lot of our managers have sold all our homes for us. Obviously, you give them bonuses and stuff to do that. But, you know, with 6,000 spaces right now, we're running at, you know, 50 people, which is pretty wow. low, you know, but I do a lot. Chris does a lot. We're very automated on everything we do. Rent manager, again, has been a godsend because everything's the same. And obviously, we're on the pay lease situation where nobody's collecting rents anymore. And we really run a model now with the managers where we think they can manage three to 400 units 
assuming most of them are lot rents pretty effectively, assuming they're close together, obviously, too. And that's sort of the model we've gone to. And some of the markets where we'll have maybe five or 600 units of one manager, they'll obviously have a full-time assistant to help them out. But business has gotten easier because of technology. Agreed. Yeah. Rent manager is huge. Paylease specifically has been a game changer. I mean, first collecting a bunch of checks and money orders every month. And, you know, at one point we needed someone just to open those, the mail, open the mail and then deposit those. Yeah. It was like, that was a job. And I was like, okay, either we move to Paylease or we hire this person full time just to open mail and deposit checks and money orders. And it was just, it was an easy decision. Yes. It's great. And um, Jonathan Gindis, who's another owner in, uh, in Durham, who's a friend of mine too. And he told me about a year ago or a year before we really got onto it. And he's like, dude, you got to go to this. And I'm like, really? You can, they don't, everyone can go online and do it. And then he was ahead of the game and it proved to be a game changer for everybody. That's awesome. That's, that's really awesome. So managers, I mean, we could, we could go so many ways. How do you find these managers? Cause I, we've had a tough time with our on-site managers staying, you know, we, we have a fairly high turnover. We're kind of using the Frank and Dave model of how to pay them $10 an occupied lot plus free lot rent. And then, you know, bonuses based on home sales and things. What's your model for that? I would say probably two thirds of them we inherited when we bought parks and the other one third, we just sort of found through ads or whatever. And, you know, our average manager makes a minimum of 65,000. Again, so we overpay them. Some of them are pushing 100 grand now where they manage 400 units or whatever. Wow. It makes our life easier. Now, in, when you're starting out in these smaller units, you absolutely have to do the Frank and Dave thing. But as you get bigger and as you aggregate more parks in certain geographic regions and you can have one manager do it, you got to get good people. And yeah. if you get good people, treat them well, you know, overpay them what they can get anywhere else. And I would say, probably 95% of our managers all came from the apartment business at one point in time. And so they, they were used to craziness over in the apartment side where you're, you know, turning over 15 units a month and everything like that. And they come over to the mobile home park side, you know, it's a lot easier, obviously, you know, except for filling homes and things like that, but then all of a sudden you get pay lease and it's really easy so they can add more units to it. So yeah, we've had some managers for 10, 11 years now, which has been great. Wow. Chris does a great job too, dealing with the managers and, and working with it. And it's, you know, I, I can't say enough how much that's going to make your job easier. We started out the way you started out. We lot rent, you know, get them cheap and whatever. And once we figured out that the better managers can do a lot of the work for you, we said, Hey, we got to bite the bullet and pay them more money, especially if they're good. Yeah, yeah. no, I think it's worth it. I think that's a, a really good tip. So what do you think is the toughest hurdle that most operators face in mobile home park ownership? Right now, it's, it, you know, obviously finding the deals because it's just so competitive. I saw a deal the other day that, you know, multiple parks, maybe eight or nine parks and secondary to tertiary markets. That was basically negative cash flow day one. Now, you probably raise your rents right away or whatever, but negative cash flow. And I just and the seller was, quote unquote, firm on his price. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, somebody, I guess, is buying that. I, I don't know. I mean. You go back to Frank and Dave, what they were saying, 10% going to 20%. That's obviously not there anymore. But if I can't get to 10% with that first rent raise, I'm not doing the deal. And I may be more yeah. selective now. We still bought 1,000 units last, last year. So wow. um, closing on another deal uh, in two weeks. So it's it, they're out there, but you just got to be a lot more selective. And 
And I think I was fortunate because when we started early, we can keep it contained geographically where mm. now you probably got to go anywhere to find a deal. Um, but technology makes it easier to manage those deals too, but you just got to be willing to get on a plane all the time. But I think that's the biggest deal right now is that raising money is not the hard part. There's a lot of money out there and you establish any track record. Here's another tip that I didn't know what I was doing, but it sort of happened is because we sold up on the parks, we developed a track record. And the, a couple investors that I had, all of a sudden they got the check back. And what's their first question? Where's the next deal? They, I don't want the money. I, I want the, you know, what are you paying them 8% or whatever, whatever the number is, you know, they want, they want to keep that money working. So I didn't realize it, but all of a sudden we created this track record. Well, Hey, it, every couple of years I get a check back with a nice, nice kick. You know, I've done really, obviously the last couple of years have been ridiculous what the returns have been. Back in the normal days when it was, you know, you were happy to get, you know, say a 10% return plus your dividend. Now it's, you know, triple your money in two years. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah. But, um, and I think we'll go back to those normal days pretty soon here with higher interest rates. But I, I think that's a good, you know, it's a tough call. Ryan and I go back and forth in this. Do you sell parks now? because they're so hard to get. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what you were saying, I think too, because if you're starting a little later, I'd be hesitant to sell a lot until I had something else going. And, but on the other hand, if you can get that tracker going, you can attract as much money as you want. And you see how many guys are doing it now. It's, it's sort of crazy. Agreed. Yeah. There's been an influx of investors into the space. Like you said, you know, PE firms and everything, Interest rates, like you mentioned, I think yesterday they decided to do 50 basis point yeah. uh, increase. So where do you think, you know, mobile home park investing is going? What do you think the next two to three years are going to look like? That's a great question. That's the million dollar question. You know, I'm tempted to sell a couple more parks uh, just to hedge my bet. Prices are high and stuff like that. We sold five parks last year to a bigger group, made really good money on them. There are more tertiary parks. It didn't fit our geography. One was in West Virginia couple in Florida, we sold out of Florida because prices were so high um, and stuff like that. But, you know, our core group is really what we have now, the 6,000 plus spaces, mostly North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, a little bit Alabama, a couple in the Midwest, but very core, easier to manage when it's closer to you and stuff like that. But I'm a little tempted because prices are high. And just to hedge my bet, you know, it, the inflation thing, you just don't know where it's going. My gut assumption is it's it's probably already peaked and we're on the downward trend. Obviously you got, you know, China issues and with COVID and, and the war over there to make it a little more difficult. But I, I read a good piece from Ken Griffin, who's, you know, runs Citadel Securities and, you know, one of the richest guys in the world. He's very worried about the dollar losing its dominance over a period of time because we're forcing their hand to stop using the dollar. And what does that mean for our interest rate thing is, you know, a normalized interest rate could be a lot higher than we we're used to. And we've gotten so spoiled in the last couple of years. So I would say just be careful. Um, I was fortunate. And then the last couple of years, we locked in a lot of our refi deals on 15, year, 15 years. Um, wow. Interest only for a lot of them too, which was crazy. Wow. Thinking about where we started back in the day, um, Fannie and stuff like that. But I, I, you know, people are like, why are you doing 15 years of the rates? I'm like, I've been through the cycle before, you know, I've seen it. 0809 was a disaster for a lot of people. Now people say to me, what happened in 0809 in the parks? Really nothing. The only thing that happened to us in 07 is we lost a bunch of residents who supposedly bought houses and miraculously they came back to us like two years later after they got foreclosed on. But 
we didn't really notice a difference, which sort of proves the whole theory about why we're investing anyway, because it's it's pretty recession proof. But lot rents are a lot higher now than they used to be. There's going to be a point where lot rents are going to get too high in certain markets. I don't know what point that is. You know, I look at some of these, you know, uh, yes, and some of these groups that really pushed the lot rents. They're still 98, 99% occupied, so they're doing really well. But there's going to be some fallout. I just don't know. I hope the theory proves like. well that, you know, mobile home parks are recession proof. Everything falls down the ladder. We're sort of at the bottom of the ladder. And in my opinion, lot rents are way too low still. You know, even though we've all been trying to push them, but we all started so low that, you know, in Raleigh, we're, you know, lot rents are averaging around 500. They probably should be at least seven, 750, you know, just because the apartment rents have gone up so much. But so there is some room there, but I'm, I'm a little bit nervous that when everybody is so, so bullish and then you start to listen to guys like Ken Griffin saying, hey, whoa, things could get real choppy here and real ugly. Just make sure you got a lot of cash in case it happens. Yeah, that's really good advice, I think. But everybody's, you know, there's two sides to that, right? Cash is trash. You know, inflation's running rampant. You know, do you, you know, how much do you leave over there? And then the other side of it, when I'm talking to the sellers, is, you know, where am I, where am I going to put the money, right? Like, what other asset class or wh where else am I going to put stuff right now if I do sell? So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But you know, I, I do think the pricing right now that sellers can command for these things is, is, is at a peak. Yeah. And it's at a total disconnect. I mean, the 10 years going up 150 bips in like four months and yeah. they still want prices from last fall, which just don't work in today's financing, you know, arrangements, or you have to be willing to accept a lot lower returns, which the PE shops obviously are willing to do puts them in a very big competitive advantage when, you know, they can, they get a 7%, you know, cash on cash in year four or five, they're cool with it, you know? Yes, Ugh, a lot can go wrong at seven percent, in my opinion. Um, yeah. and especially too, because you're buying fifty-year-old infrastructure in a lot of these deals. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely stuff can go wrong. The good news is everything's fixable, even if it's wastewater treatment plants, it's sewers or whatever. Everything's fixable at a certain price. You know, workers trying to get anything done right now is is difficult, but I think it is. But I just, I'm I'm a Midwestern guy, so I'm always a little bit cautious. And you have in the back of your mind, you know, I went through 99, 2000 when I was in the financial planning business and then the market tanked and, you know, you got people, you know, like 30% returns in 99 and they lost a little money in 2000 and they were irate at you, you know, it was just sort of crazy, but 08, 09 was fairly smooth, like I was saying. So I, I feel like the model will hold up in certain situations. I think it will. So I, I just hope, but I, again, be a little bit cautious here. When do you think cap rates are gonna catch up and start ticking up now that interest rates are up. Do you think that lag will continue because there's increased liquidity in the marketplace? That, that, that's another really tough question. I think it's more a supply and demand issue, obviously, because you know, they're not making any new parks. You know, we've got a few in development, but they take forever. You know, and it, it's just difficult process. Um, Texas seems to be developing some more parks and because they have the land available, but I don't know, I, I mean, it's supply and demand and these guys, I'm just always surprised when I see a deal come out and that just gets bid to the moon. And I'm just, when I knew it was sort of over was about, um, I think it was right before COVID, the fall before COVID-19, 2019. I was in a deal on a park in Charlotte and basically the broker who I knew well said, Mike, it's between you and this, you know, hedge fund, basically private equity shop. 
And they said they're going to build, bid a million dollars more than you. So whatever you bid, it's not going to oh, matter. Oh, my goodness. And Jeez. so I raised it a couple of times. And sure enough, they raised a million dollars more. I'm like, OK, I get it. You know, I'm sort of out of this game. Um, and they turn on, on that park. They killed it on that park, by the way. Um, so good for them. But it was, you know, that's the game has changed. So these guys are willing. So the supply and demand issue offsets the cap rate thing. Getting sellers, I, I see that now where mom and pops are like, ooh, I probably should have sold last fall. I still want that same price. And uh, in my opinion, I don't think the brokers do a good enough job talking them down. They're trying to do that a little yeah. bit, but I, I think it's been easy for the brokers for a lot, you know, for the last couple of years. They, you know, they're all good guys. They've done well, but it's there needs to be a come to Jesus meeting at some point and say, hey, this is just not realistic at this stage. So yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, because that, that'll also put less pressure on new owners to do these drastic rent increases, right? Like they're, they're yeah. performing these, these big rent increases and, and paying a price based upon those. So I know there's been some kind of negative press recently. What do you think about that and some of these other larger groups that kind of have, uh, you know, made the paper? Yeah, you know, I, I think I know several of them. And my first point is they're not wrong. They're, they're, you know, they're running models that are correct. They, the rent should be where they're at. It's just, they didn't take into account. And I probably, they probably just didn't understand it as well. The type of people you're dealing with. It's those people are down on their luck. They need to be treated a little with more care and more understanding. And I think they realize that now, um, you know, some people were talking to me, well, there's a threat of national, you know, rent control. I don't see that happening. Uh, I don't see it definitely in the Southeast. It's not going to happen you know, maybe in some cities, obviously in New York and California and, and some of those places it has. Um, and I don't know how you invest there. I went and looked in California a couple of years ago and I'm a couple of places where two, 3%, you know, rent control things. And I was like, there's just no way. I mean, you can't keep yeah. up with expenses. So I don't think that'll happen in the Southeast, which makes the Southeast more in demand mm -hmm. um, to, to do that. But I, you know, I think one of the things they're doing well in some of the groups that you know well too, that you know, made the mistake. They're really doing good with the PR thing now, putting out a lot more information. Hey, we're investing this in the community and that. I like that type of thing. Uh, Ryan Naris and I had a big talk about that about a week ago. It's like, you know, we all need to do as an industry, put some more positive press out there, how you're helping people and reinvesting and stuff like that. But the bottom line, if you use sort of the rule of thumb is, um, you know, lot rent should probably be the equivalent of a class B two bedroom apartment in your market. You know, Raleigh right now, the rent's going through the roof. A class B apartment's 1500 bucks. So, Jeez. you know, and not that great of a neighborhood and, you know, no yard, no nothing. You got somebody on top of you inside you. And we should probably be at 750 But, you know, when I bought a lot of these parks, you know, five, seven years ago, we were at 190 you know, so it's yeah. hard to get. And now we're at 500 and it seems like a lot, but it's still not enough. So I, I think the title changed a little bit. Um, as people go and it looks like Colorado, the rent control is not going to happen. I, I just think rent control is a bad idea. It's yeah. capital flea things. All I talked to a guy from New York the other day, he said, New York city is a nightmare right now because the, the rent controls. And I, I think it, it'll take a couple of years to see the backlash against that. And as long as I think we mind our P's and Q's and don't make some of those mistakes, you just, it, it's hard though. Cause you know how it is. You get into a deal and say, man, I really like this deal. And I know the lot rent should be they're at 300 and they should be at 500 but i always say to myself damn i don't want to be in the paper you know i, that's, yeah. I don't want to be in the news i don't want people knowing what it is so it, it's a tough call 
And I think we got spoiled too, because it used to be you could buy the park, add the homes, you know, fix it up in 18 months, you refinance, got all your money out and you're on to the next deal and you could either keep it or sell it or whatever. Now that one and a half years, which was totally unrealistic, is more like three to four years, which is which probably is still more. great. It is. It's still it great. Is. We got so spoiled, you know, it was just, yeah, and no. it's way reasonable, you know, from a time frame perspective. So it's yeah. not bad. Um, I just think you just got to be careful there that, you know, keep your head down as much as you can. Agreed. Agreed. What do you think are the most important things, passive investors, you know, we're talking total LPs here. What are the most important things they need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? Uh, it's obviously all about the operator and what the track record is. If, if they have confidence, trust in the, in the operator, that is everything in my opinion, whether they get a 5% dividend or 8% dividend, you know, if somebody's arguing a lot about that, you probably don't want them as an investor. Um, but the passive people need to understand they're going to get a good rate of return. And again, if you can flip a couple deals and get them a good, really nice return, all they're going to do is tell their friends how great it is. So you're going to have money beyond belief. Um, but I think the passive investor just needs to, I think you go with the smaller guy, the smaller to mid-sized guy, not the bigger guy. The bigger guy, you're going to get lost in the shuffle. I think it gets very corporate in certain situations. People get to 10,000, 12,000 sites and you know, you, you, you can't talk to people like you and me, then what the passive guy wants to do is call you and say, Hey, Andrew, you know, how are things going or whatever. And I think we've always tried to keep it small enough to, for that to happen. I deal with all the investors and they're all friends of mine that happen to be, but um, that's what they want is that comfort level to, Hey, look you in the eye and say, Hey, is everything cool? I mean, we good. And obviously the last 10 years have been ridiculous. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, we talked previously before we started recording about like the, the fund model versus like individual syndications. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on that. And if you were an LP, which one you would prefer to invest in? Yeah, it's, you know, cause I went through that a lot, especially in the early years, you know, I got pitched by every PE shop initially, you know, they want you to be the operator and blah, blah, blah. They'll put the money up. I just, I had been through a situation in the broker dealer world where we sold a broker dealer to a large insurance company and we were all best friends until the day the deal closed. And then it became, mm. Hey, you're my employee. I'm going to tell you what to do. And I'm like, what? I thought we were friends, you know, but you realize the deal changes, you know? And my thought with why I didn't do that is a, I could never quite get comfortable with anyone I really liked came close with one group. Um, but the other thing is if you ever have an issue with these guys, they can sue you to no end. And I get that you want their money and you want to grow and stuff like that, but just be careful who you're dealing with because they, they can be very nasty people if they want to be. Um, again, when everything's going great, it's fine. But if things go the other way, especially with interest rates going up, it's not the same situation. I have always done it deal by deal. Again, I've been, you know, I tend to put or always have basically put more money in than anyone else. So it's been a little bit easier, but the fun thing to me, the biggest negative, and it's happening right now. And I see in a lot of situations and you mentioned it before too, is there's a lot of pressure to do deals because you don't get paid unless the money gets to work and mm -hmm. your partner's pushing you and say, Hey, I gave you a hundred million bucks. You got to put it to work. You know, we need our fees and things like that. That forces bad deals. I see a lot of that happening right now. Um, I prefer the individual model. I, I, I refer to it as the Chick-fil-A thing. Chick-fil-A grew slow because they bought the, the land and the restaurant. 
um, where McDonald's franchisees typically own the land. It's a little bit different. So McDonald's could grow a lot faster because they didn't have to use their capital. Chick-fil-A, I think, is more quality, grew slower, and now is crushing McDonald's. But they, they just had more control over the situation. And I would encourage people to do it deal by deal. Have your investors lined up, but don't get that money and feel like you got a gun to your head because you're in your mind, you're going to say, I could probably get this deal done or it could, yeah, maybe it won't be this bad or whatever it may be. But if it is, then, you know, you have to make those people whole. That's the way I always looked at it. If yeah. there was a problem, it was going to come out of my pocket. So I better make a good deal. Yeah. Amen. What do you think the perfect mobile home park looks like in your eyes and why? Hmm. Well, the perfect one to buy, obviously, is one from mom and pops. And, you know, people, that's, that's been our model from day one that, you know, maybe kept rents too low or too close to the residents, stuff like that. We're lot rent only people as much as possible. Um, you know, we do 120, 130 new homes with Clayton every year. So we do have, you know, sort of a rent to own model with the newer homes, but <clears throat> anything older we sell, we'll either fix it. I have, you know, a crew fix it up and sell it and have become a lot renter and stuff like that. I don't, I've never really made money on the homes. I always try to break even on the homes and keep the lot rents high. And that comes from, you know, really pre Fannie getting involved five years ago where you couldn't get a deal done if you had any park owned homes. And they were yeah. so picky. They didn't like three-star parks and the whole thing. So this, that's my thing. What's turned out to be too, it's a lot easier to manage. So my perfect park is 200 spaces, lot renters, public, you know, if possible, direct water, you know, build water and sewer. If you run into a direct bill situation, keep that park. <clears throat> In my opinion, there's so much easier. You'd never have the issues you do of the other parks. But I would also have a caveat. I have several parks with private utilities and I was scared of those initially, but it's not that big of a deal. If you know how to handle them, you get the right people. So, um, and I would have passed on a couple of great deals if I didn't, you know, jump on that type of situation. But to me, it's the lot rent thing. And again, a lot of guys are renting homes now. And I don't think it's the wrong thing because some of these investors are giving you the same value for the rentals as they are for the lot rent. So you might as well go in there, especially if you can do a sort of a flip deal, you know, rent them all and then let the seller or the buyer figure it out, you know, what they want to pay you. So I don't yeah. like, you know, I would never buy a deal like that, but there's a lot of guys that will. And like you were saying too, a lot of guys come over from the apartment business who view, they're not afraid of that rental model. I think it's tougher on the mobile home park side because they really can beat these units up if they want to. But, you know, yeah. I got buddies who that's all they do in their parks is straight like rentals. Park, park owned homes, just straight rentals. Rentals. Yeah. yeah, flat apartment complex. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's a, just a different model, right? There's yeah. many different niches inside of this asset class. And a lot of people have made money over the last 10 years in different yeah. different ones. So I would say on the rental model, you're not going to be able to grow as fast, sort of like the mobile home or sort of like the apartment business, because you're going to have three or four maintenance guys. Yeah. And those guys are going to turn over and you got constant, you know, you, again, the horizontal apartment complex. I always looked at it and said, if I want to be in the apartment business, I'm going to buy the brick and mortar. If sure. I want to be in the mobile home park business, I'm doing it because the lot rent, it's a lot easier to manage. So that's yeah. the way we looked at it. Definitely. Did you ever look at third-party property management? No. Well, I've looked at them, obviously, but I, I just, I was appalled. And it, we had taken over parks that were managed by third parties and it was atrocious. Now, it may have gotten better now. I haven't kept up on it. We manage all our own stuff. We're hands-on. I want to know what's going on. I want to, 
you know, have that sense of feel that we know where the people are at, where the pricing's at, and stuff like that. If you're growing nationwide and you have to do it, I get you have to do it. I don't know how the pricing works in today's, you know, where it's a lot thinner on the margins. I would just encourage you if you don't have to do it, manage your own stuff. Find, in my case, it's a Chris Berry. If you can find that guy who's got different skills than you, I'm more of a big picture sales guy. He's more of an operational details guy. And it's a perfect combination between us to have that. But if you have that one guy that can really help you on, on that side of the business, you're going to do really well with it. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much. I mean, this is just a, a ton of valuable information. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really enjoy it. I'm you know, excited to you know, be with you. And I've heard you know, great things about you and your career and stuff like that. So keep thank up you. the good work and keep up what you're doing with the podcast. It's really valuable, especially to the young guys coming in. Thank you. I will, I will do that. Mike, if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Do I have to give out my phone number? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you can just hit me up an email. It's probably the easiest. It's mconlon, C-O-N-L-O-N, the number one, at Gmail, or go to our uh, website, which is acgmhc.com. Uh, either one. Be happy to answer any questions. Do it all the time. You know, I wrote the book back in 2015 in the last section, sort of mobile home parks. And randomly still, I'll get people, hey, I read the book. I got this question, that question. I'm always happy to help anybody. To, anytime you can help the younger people, it helps the business. So it's all good. Awesome. If you had one last tip to give people interested in investing into mobile home parks, what would that last tip be that uh, you, would, you would leave them with? I would say don't be afraid. Even if in, in a rising interest rate environment, there's still deals out there. Don't think that the deals have all gone away. But stick to your model as much as you can. Don't overreach in this environment and buy from mom and pops, not from other people in the industry. That is gold right there. Buying the buy from mom and pops thing. I'm, I, I think that's huge. We have something in our, our CRM called a goat, a goat seller, gray, old and tired. And that's you, like, that's you, the model because they leave the most meat on the bone. So I agree. Totally agree. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Mike. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value-add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram, at PassiveMHPInvesting, for photos and awesome videos from our recent Mobile Home Park acquisitions. Once again, that's at PassiveMHPInvesting on Instagram. See you there.